You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. And turn to the book of Jonah. Turn to the book of Jonah. The end of chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 17 through all of chapter 2 together. Don't get your hopes up. We're not actually going to cover that much material this morning, but we are going to read it together. Then Jonah, sorry, verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Let's bow together as we open our time together. Our Father, we bow now before You and we ask with Your Word open before us that our hearts would be open before You. That You would teach us and instruct us and may we bow the knee to what Your Word says and not expect Your Word to bend to our mistaken notions of what is right and what is true and what is possible. We thank You that You are holy and righteous and true, and we thank You that Your Word is righteous and true altogether. There is no error in it. And so we ask today that You would teach us and sanctify us now by that truth. In Jesus' name, Amen. Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And now we come to perhaps the most unbelievable verse in all of the book of Jonah. Right? Or at least as far as the skeptics would say, and the critics and the agnostics and the atheists. If not the most unbelievable verse in all of the Old Testament, maybe even the whole Bible. In fact, of all of the passages in all of the 66 books of the Bible, this verse, verse 17, and this story of Jonah getting swallowed by a great fish seems to get singled out for the the most mockery, the most ridicule, the most finger-pointing. I was just with a pastor friend of mine a couple weeks ago, Keith Gillette, and he was tell, I told him we were going through the book of Jonah on Sunday mornings, and he said to me, that reminds me of a story when I was first converted, I was working at a sawmill. And I'd just become a Christian. I was only a couple weeks into my Christian faith, and I was on fire. I was witnessing to all my co-workers around me, telling them about Jesus. And I was running a machine, and this one guy walked up to me, and he said, Gillette, 
Do you really believe the Bible? Do you really believe that a man was swallowed by a fish and he lived three days and was vomited up again on dry land? And Keith said, yes, I do. Believe every word of it. And the guy just let out this belly roll of a laugh and shook his head and walked away. Why? Because it seems so unbelievable. It seems so so beyond credulity. So beyond the ability for our minds to wrap itself around. And it just gets kind of singled out for ridicule, special mockery, and special abuse. People think that you have to disengage every mental faculty and every rational capacity and every critical thinking ability that you have in order to believe that a man was actually swallowed by a fish and lived to tell about it. But I would submit to you that if you have a hard time believing Genesis 1 verse 17, it's because you have a very small God. In fact, your God is nothing more than an idol, a powerless idol who's incapable of doing something like this, also incapable of saving you from sin. The problem really is not with what is written in the Bible when it comes to this miracle or any miracle. The problem is man's unwillingness to believe all that is written in Scripture and to find some way around it. Now, I've never been one to take my, my cues from unbelieving atheists, and I would submit to you that if somebody believes that uh, in the fairy tale of evolution that they are in no position to tell us what's believable and what's unbelievable, and so I don't think it's time for Christians to start saying, well, maybe we should believe what the evolutionists are telling us and what's believable and what's unbelievable. Anybody that believes the fairy tale of evolution shouldn't be talking to anybody about credibility or gullibility. So, Jonah 1, verse 17. We left off verse 16 last time we were together. and We left off with Jonah in the drink, cast overboard by the sailors after they did everything in their power to, to rescue Jonah and to get to dry land without sacrificing him to save their own skin. They finally did. And the minute they threw Jonah overboard, the sea stopped its raging. Everything stopped. And those men were so overcome by the power and the sovereignty and the providence and the glory of God that it says that they sacrificed and they made vows to the Lord and they feared the Lord greatly. Those men were converted. Probably much to Jonah's disgust. And then that brings us to verse 17 where it says that the Lord appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. Now we're going to go through verse 17 and chapter 2 verse 1 which sort of introduces us to the prayer that's contained in chapter 2. And for the sake of an outline or something memorable for you, we're going to notice basically three elements in the text. Number one, we're going to see the hand of God in Jonah's protection, the beginning of verse 17. The hand of God in Jonah's preservation, the end of verse 17. And then we're going to see the hand of God in Jonah's prayer, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. And that will sort of serve to introduce us. Mostly we're going to focus on chapter 1, verse 17 this morning. Now I want you to notice, before we get into the details, I want you to notice just a couple of general observations about the whole, this whole story or this whole episode. You will notice that Jonah records this for us with a very straightforward simplicity. Do you notice he doesn't give us any juicy details? You notice that? Just Jonah was swallowed by the fish three days, three nights. Here's the prayer vomited up on dry land. No juicy details. Doesn't describe what it was like to be inside of the belly of the fish. He doesn't describe what it was like to be swallowed by the fish. The fish almost seems incidental to the story, and it really is. The fish is only mentioned in chapter 1, verse 17, and chapter 2, verse 10. The fish is only mentioned in connection with swallowing Jonah and in vomiting Jonah up. But other than that, the fish really is not the centerpiece of the story. The fish is just sort of the scenery, the backdrop. And that's not to suggest the fish is not important. It is an important detail. But it's to suggest that the emphasis is not on the fish. The emphasis is on Jonah and what's going on in Jonah in the fish. In chapter 1, the focus of the story was on the sailors 
and how they responded to the hand of God in the storm. Chapter 2, the emphasis is on Jonah and how he responds to the hand of God in the stomach of the fish. So really, the fish is just incidental to the story. That's not to suggest that this didn't actually happen. Get that down. Just because it's only mentioned a couple times doesn't mean we can try and explain it away. We're going to deal with that in just a second. The second general observation I want you to notice, not only is it just mentioned in a very simplistic and straightforward way, but it doesn't have any of the details, that, any of the characteristics that we would come to expect. If somebody were trying to pass something off to its readers that wasn't actually true. When you read fictional, allegorical, mythical legends, they're filled with all sorts of details that are thrown in in order to convince the reader that something that is truly unbelievable actually happened. And all those details are given to sort of fill it in and, and sort of sell the story to the reader. But Jonah doesn't make any attempt to sell this to us at all. In fact, there seems to be no indication from what we read that Jonah would have ever thought that anybody who read this would have thought this was unbelievable. It's just a very straightforward way of telling the story. So now let's look first of all at the hand of God in Jonah's protection, beginning in verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. I want you to notice right at the beginning of the verse, right at the beginning of this account, the Lord has given credit for everything that's about to happen. The Lord appointed the fish to swallow Jonah. The word appointed means to provide something, to appoint something. It's very interesting how Jonah uses this word all the way through the book. It's used four times in this book. It's used here when it says that the Lord appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. Then I want you to turn over the page, or maybe two in your Bible, and look at chapter 4, verse 6. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from the discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. The Lord appointed a a fish, and he appointed a plant. Verse 7, but God appointed a worm when the day came to the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. Verse 8, when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind. The four things, God appoints a fish, a plant, a worm, and a wind. And if you like alliteration, you could use whale, weed, worm, and wind. Four things that God appointed. All four of them throughout the book, every time it's used, it's used to describe God doing something providentially or miraculously or supernaturally. God's intimate hand in that detail. The fish was appointed by the Lord for a reason. In other words, Jonah's telling us, God was using this fish. It's not just that Jonah was able to be swallowed by a fish, or that, I guess I should say that the fish was able to swallow Jonah, but it's that God was so involved in it that that right fish was there at the right time, right where Jonah was at, and that the fish was inclined to swallow him instead of eat him. And not only did God appoint the fish, the whale, but God appointed a plant. And He used that plant. And that plant is another providential and miraculous event. And then the worm, that there would be a worm there who would have an appetite for that plant and be able to devour that plant. And that God would appoint an east wind just at the right time after the plant had withered. God's hand providentially and sovereignly controlling all of these details. The Lord appointed a fish. And He swallowed Jonah. I think the implication is, and it's safe for us to assume, that that fish swallowed Jonah whole. And He did it without causing Jonah um, any severe, if any, injuries at all. That Jonah was able to be swallowed and that he was swallowed and that this was injury-free for Jonah. Now, that's what the text says. The text says that God appointed a fish and He swallowed Jonah. Now we ask ourselves, what do we do with that text? Let me give you the short answer. You believe it. That's your short answer to it. Now, some 
this is just absolutely too much for some people to swallow, pun intended. So they try all of these curious ways of trying to get around what the text says and what the text means and what could have happened there because they say it's just too unbelievable that a man could be swallowed by a fish. And so they go about this in a couple of different ways. And let me give you a few examples of what people do. First, some people try and prove that this happened by pointing to other modern day happenings that are of similar or the same nature. Uh, other examples of men who have been swallowed by a fish or a whale and then have been spit up and regurgitated onto a boat or out in the middle of the sea or, or been pulled out of a whale. And we'll return to that in just a second. The second method is for people to say, well, this actually never happened at all. It was just a myth. It's an allegory. It's a legend. It's something that was sort of elaborated on over the course of time. And that's just a bunch of malarkey, maloney. There's maloney? Malarkey, baloney, both of those, malarkey, because I just put them all together and that you know it's baloney and malarkey all mixed together. It's just a bunch of bogus nonsense that somebody would believe that. This is not an allegory. This is not a legend and it's not a myth. It's not something that was elaborated on over time. It's not something that's crept down to us and been changed through the years. If you like allegory, read something other than your Bible because there's no allegory in your Bible. Nowhere. Old Testament, New Testament, there's no such thing as allegory in your Bible. The writers of the Bible were not allegory writers. And allegory is never, ever, never a proper interpretive motif or a proper interpretive tool. Anytime anybody ever says to you, look, this is allegorical and here's what it means, you know you're about to be pushed off a cliff into error. That is wrong. There's no such thing as allegory. And it's not a myth and it's not a legend. Now, the third way that some people try and get around this is just to simply, in a very fanciful fashion, interpret the text. Now, let me give you an example of a very fanciful interpretation of the text. And I ran across this this last week. Somebody would say, what verse 17 really means, now listen, because it's going to be hard for you to follow, what verse 17 really means is this, that Jonah went through all of that out on the sea. And when the boat finally reached dry land, Jonah spent three days and three nights recovering at an inn called the fish. Now, friends, if I actually did drugs, I could not make up an interpretation like that. That is just so silly and nonsensical, it is almost ludicrous. So what are we left with? Well, look, Jesus viewed this as history. Jesus treated this as history. He quoted the story and He didn't adjust the thinking of the first century Jews and say, well, I know you've always understood this to be an actual historical event. But before I tell you about Jonah and the fish, you have to understand it's just a myth. It's just a legend. It's just an allegory. It's just a symbol. It's just a spiritual tale. Jesus didn't do any of that. He quoted it as actual history. So, if Jesus didn't consider it an insult to His intelligence to believe that Jonah and the fish actually happened, as it is written, then I would suggest to you it's not an insult to your intelligence to believe that it actually happened either. So that leads us back to our first possibility. I said there were three ways. The first was people try and prove this event based upon other things that have similarly happened. And the second way is to regard it as an allegory. Third was the fanciful interpretation. Let's deal with this issue of trying to prove that this actually happened because of modern day occurrences. Some people will say, Look, we can know that Jonah was actually swallowed by a fish, and here's why. Because in 1859, a guy named James Bartley was on a whaling boat called the Eastern Sea or the Eastern Moon or something like that. 
And there was two sort of dinghies that were sent out after a whale. And after a whale was harpooned, it overturned the one dinghy, and it had this James Bartley and another guy in it. And the whale swallowed James Bartley, and the rest of the crew, of course, harpooned the whale. And both men had disappeared from the perspective of the rest of the crew. So they spent a day and a half uh, skinning the whale and gutting it and cleaning it and scraping off all the blubber and all of that. And when they finally brought the guts on board the ship, they noticed something moving, and they cut open the stomach. And there was James Bartley down in the middle of the stomach of that fish, having survived for about a day and a half inside the fish. He was disoriented and kind of loopy, a little nuts. But after a week... He sort of got his bearings and he came to and they rinsed him off with some seawater and, and gave him enough sleep and he was able to come to. And that was actually reported. There's another instance back in the 17, mid-1700s of another uh, a man who was swallowed after a shipwreck by a fish and it went down and they came back up and immediately regurgitated him up onto this, this boat. There's examples like that. I could go on, I could tell you stories about that, but here's the problem with that. Both of those instances are debated or... Uh, doubted by some people. There are people who were there, who were witnesses, who swear by it, and there was others, for instance, the widow of James Bartley, who later on came out, I guess, and said that never happened, or she had never at least heard of it. And so you would think that if James Bartley had been swallowed by a whale, that he would at least have shared that with his wife. You're never going to believe what happened. We had a storm. It was great. We got three whales. Oh, and I was swallowed by a whale. I spent a day and a half in the belly of the whale, and they cut me open and washed me off. You would think he would have said something to his wife. Here's the problem with trying to prove that this happened based upon other things that similarly happened. Here's the issue. If this happened a thousand times since Jonah, would it make it any more believable? No. If we had no other example of this happen, happening, does that make it any more unbelievable or difficult to believe? You and I should never ever fall into the trap of thinking, I will believe my Bible if I can see it confirmed somewhere else by something similar happening. So I could go through all of the effort to try and prove to you that this could happen, and therefore we should believe that it happens, but then you're going to walk out of here and say, I can believe that that happened because Jim showed me that it's possible for that to happen. And I don't want you to believe that. I want you to believe that this happened because it is written. And that's it. I need no other confirming evidence. I need no other like uh, similar story. I need nothing else. I don't need to measure the esophagus of a sperm whale. I don't need to measure the stomach of a sperm whale. I don't need to conduct experiments to see if this is possible. The Word of God says that this happened, and so we rest upon that. But the reason I'm spending the time talking about this, because I could just go on, and some of you really wish that I would go on, the reason that I'm spending all the time talking about this is because I want you to be critically thinking about why you believe certain miracles are in the Bible. Listen, I have never seen a universe come into existence out of nothing in recent times. Have you? Never seen that. But I believe Genesis 1-1, nevertheless. Whether, nonetheless, whether it happened, whether I can confirm it or not. I've never seen five loaves and two fish feed a multitude of men and women. Never seen that happen in modern times. But I believe what is written in the Gospel. I've never seen a man come back to life in a glorified state three days after being crucified on a cross. But I believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ nonetheless. I have never seen a man swallowed by a fish and survive three days in the belly of that fish. But I believe the story of Jonah nonetheless. Why? Because it is written. And if it is written, we can trust it. That's why we believe the miracles. Not because they can be proved. So now what do we do with some of the stories that are told about, like James Bartley for instance, men being swallowed by fish? There was a paper published 
back in 1927 in the Princeton Theological Review by a man named A.J. Wilson, Ambrose John Wilson. Very close, John, but not quite. Ambrose John Wilson, 1927, Princeton Theological Review. You can look it up online. I looked it up and I read it. The title of it is The Sign of the Prophet Jonah and Its Modern Confirmations. Now, this is obviously back when uh, Christians actually taught theology at Princeton, Princeton Seminary, Princeton University. And uh, he, in that paper, argued from all of these modern examples of the fish being swallowed. Uh, no, not the fish being swallowed by Jonah, of Jonah or men being swallowed by a fish to prove that this could actually happen to Jonah. Now, you may ask, is it possible or is a fish, is there any fish capable of swallowing a man? Because the first thing that a skeptic says is there's no fish living or dead that has ever been able to swallow a man whole. And that's not true. Now, keep in mind everything I just said. I'm not trying to prove this to you, but I just want to dispel some false notions. It's not true. A great white shark, a whale shark, a sperm whale, and a blue whale would all be capable of swallowing a man whole. A sperm whale, for instance, grows up to 70 feet long. Its mouth is 20 feet uh, long. It has a stomach large enough to hold a man it has an esophagus that's 18 inches in diameter, could easily swallow a man. So it's more than possible if we're just trying to explain it in scientific or strict rationale terms. It is possible. But friends, this isn't the only miracle that occurs in the book of Jonah. You realize that, don't you? It's not just that Jonah was swallowed by a fish, but that he survived three days and three nights in the belly of that fish. And that he was vomited up back on dry land. Not just out in the middle of the Mediterranean somewhere, but actually up on dry land. Those are all miraculous providential occurrences. So could it happen? Indeed, it could happen. But the reality is that if Genesis 1.1 says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, if that is true, then every other verse in my Bible is believable. You realize that? If Genesis 1.1 is true, every other verse in my Bible is believable. So did this actually happen? Yes, it did. It did actually happen. Not only is it possible... But God doesn't ask us to believe it because it's possible. He asks us to believe it because the Lord appointed a fish and the fish swallowed Jonah. And Jonah was alive three days and three nights in the belly of that fish. By the way, just in case you're confused, not an inn called the fish. Right? Not an inn called the fish, but an actual fish. Was it a whale? It could have been. Could have been actually an animal that we don't even know existed, an extinct animal. It could be an animal that God created or designed especially for that purpose. And I gotta wonder if it was a, if it was a sperm whale, if it was a whale that actually exists today and it existed back then, isn't it, not use the word incredible, but isn't it awesome that God would select that fish out of thousands like it and providentially grow it to the point over the course of so much time and bring it right to that point in the Mediterranean Sea when Jonah was there? And he would be swallowed by that fish. Well, that's the hand of God in Jonah's protection. Now I want you to look at the, the rest of verse 17, the hand of God in Jonah's preservation. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. He was in the stomach preserved by the fish three days and three nights. I want you to understand something about the fish and something about Jonah in this whole episode. And this is key. The fish for Jonah is not a punishment. We often think of Jonah being swallowed by the fish and we think, oh, that's what you get for running away from the Lord, right? You get swallowed by a fish. And then if I were a, a typical sort of modern American preacher, I would say, what's swallowing you today? What is gobbling you up today? Is it your worries? Is it your concerns? Is it your illnesses? Is it your lack of finances? Please know that God is able to spit you back up onto dry land and the land of prosperity and oh, blah, 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 blah. But I'm not going to do that. 
But I do want you to think of the fish, not in terms of Jonah's punishment, but listen, it was Jonah's protection and his preservation. You look at chapter 2, verse 3, for instance, Jonah says, you cast me down into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and all your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight, nevertheless I will look again toward your holy temple. Look at verse 5, water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. This is hell for Jonah. Sinking down. And along comes the fish. Not as a punishment, but as a what? As a deliverance from sure death. Now, does that mean it was comfortable? comfortable for Jonah? Not at all. Miserable, as you're about to see. But not comfortable, but it was not punishment. It was God's preservation. God's preservation of Jonah. And he was alive in the belly of that fish three days and three nights. Now, how would God do this? Do I need to have a rationalistic explanation? You say, no, not after point one of this sermon. We got that down. But there are all kinds of ways that God could have done this. God could have caused the fish to surface every once in a while and on regular intervals and Pardon the word, belch out a bunch of air, gulp in a bunch of air for Jonah. God could have simply preserved the air inside there or preserved Jonah inside the fish. There are a number of ways that God could have done this. But the reality is that God did it. And it was a miracle. It was a sign because Jesus uses the word sign in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 12, to speak of this. And what Jesus is describing is the miraculous emergence of Jonah out of the fish. This was a miracle that God preserved Jonah in the belly of the fish for three days and for three nights. And that is a long period of time. If you're in the belly of a fish, what, is an, what does a minute feel like to you? Like hours. A minute would feel like hours. And an hour would feel like days. Three days. Now, it should sound familiar to you because in, Ma- in Matthew chapter 12 in the New Testament, Jesus quotes this and He says, As Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And he points to Jonah as a prophetic picture. And we covered this on Resurrection Sunday just a few weeks ago. Do you remember that? There are two types of prophecy. There's prophetic proclamation where a prophet stands up and he says, thus says the Lord. And he proclaims something with his words. But then there are also prophetic pictures. There are things in the Old Testament which point forward and symbolically point as signs to something future, a greater fulfillment, something that was to come which would fulfill the picture or the sign. Jonah, Jesus said, is a prophetic picture, a sign of him and his entombment in the tomb for three days and three nights. Now, remember the three days and the three nights in the case of Jesus? A figure of speech referring to any period of time which took place over three different day periods of time. Friday to Saturday to Sunday, they would call that three days and three nights. Now, was it just 30 or 40 hours for Jonah or was it something closer to 72 hours? It very well could have been something closer to 72 hours for Jonah. As he was in there for three days and three nights. Now, here's a quick theological question for you. Quiz. Paying attention? Listen. Was Jonah alive or dead in the belly of the whale? What do you think? Alive or dead in the belly of the whale? You'd have to say alive because it's very difficult for dead people to pray like he does in, in chapter 2, right? But there are some who would argue that Jonah actually died in the deep, in the water, and that he was swallowed by the whale, and that he was, when he was resurrected miraculously or raised back to life, when he was vomited up onto dry land. For instance, a familiar name, Henry Morris, the founder of Institute for Creation Research, in his book, The Remarkable Journey of Jonah, actually argues that Jonah died in the sea, was swallowed, and was resurrected then three days later when he was regurgitated or vomited back up onto the dry land. 
And the desire in saying that and in, in, in making that parallel is to make more of a commonality between Jonah and Jesus. So Morris would argue Jesus was saying just as Jonah died and was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights and then was resurrected and vomited up again, so will the Son of Man die and be in the tomb three days and three nights and then be arise miraculously out of the tomb. Some people would argue that. I'm unconvinced by it for two reasons. Number one, because what I just mentioned, it's difficult for dead men to pray like they do in chapter 2. Second, I would suggest that Jesus' intended parallel between Himself and Jonah has nothing to do with death and resurrection. It has to do with the period of time He was in the tomb, similar to Jonah. And the miraculous nature of Jonah's deliverance from the belly of the fish symbolized Jesus' miraculous deliverance from the grave in resurrection from the dead. It, It did not intend to signify that Jonah died. And there's nothing in the book of Jonah that suggests that Jonah died. I just want you for a second to imagine what this was like. You read in chapter 2 that Jonah says, your, your breakers rolled over my head and I sunk down to the deep, to the roots of the mountains, and the weeds wrapped themselves around my head. And he pictures himself in a very poetic, very symbolic, but very, I think, literal way as well, as sinking down to the bottom of the depths before he was delivered by the fish. Now I ask you this, how long do you think Jonah treaded water after he was thrown in the drink? How long did he tread water? You would think that there would be some sort of self-preservation instinct that would kick in and that he would swim. I would suggest to you that he treaded water probably until he couldn't tread water any longer. Long enough to see the sea stop its raging and the sailors all on board the ship begin to fear God and offer sacrifices and make vows to the Lord. He was probably there treading water and witnessing and hearing this whole thing, lasting as long as he could. But there would have had to have come a point where Jonah began to sink and he sunk down, down, down. And I want you to put yourself in Jonah's position of being so worn out that you can't tread water anymore. And this is a little bit of sanctified imagination. Grant me that but sinking down to the depths and feeling that crushing pain and realizing I'm going to drown and this is the last hit. I've maybe got a minute left in me before I expire. This is it. I'm meeting my maker. And then all of a sudden with the weeds wrapped around you and maybe floating seaweed that has gone down with you, you're sinking down to the bottom of all of that mess, realizing that you're about to die and then something happens. And you feel engulfed in a chamber of some sort And then you realize, I'm in the mouth of something much bigger than me. And then you feel squished or constricted in that mouth. And then you take a trip, like down a water slide, so to speak, but very constricted, right down, it's a short trip, right down and sploosh into a pool. Now, what did that smell like? You ever ask yourself that? What does seaweed and seawater and rotting seafood, and digestive juices all mixed together, what does that smell like? Jonah would be able to tell you. And every breath that he took, if he breathed through his nose, he would get it in full force. And if he breathed through his mouth, it would probably be thick enough that you could almost taste it. And imagine if you open up your mouth and it gets sloshed around inside of there. You're spitting it out. What did that taste like? And and when you want to wipe your mouth, what do you wipe your mouth with? Your hands are covered by that. And you wipe your mouth and do you lick your lips? Do your lips even get dry inside of that? What would that have tasted like? And it would have been dark. 
And I mean, I imagine inside the belly of that fish, it would have been a darkness that was almost oppressive. Have you ever been somewhere where it is so dark that you feel the darkness? I remember as a school child uh, taking a tour with um, a school. We went up to, it was caves somewhere. I was so young, I don't remember where the caves were at. But they took us down this long plank, down into the bottom of this cave, and it was all lit up with lights along the, the pathway, the sort of catwalk down in the caves. And we went down, I don't know, 300 feet, 400 feet, 500 feet, something like that. And they said, now we're going to turn off the lights, and you try and put your hand in front of your face and see if you can see it. And they turned off the lights. And after a couple of seconds, you could not see anything. It was the type of darkness that you can feel. That's the type of darkness inside the belly of a fish. That type of darkness. The type of darkness you can feel where you can put your hand in front of your face and you can't even see it. And you can't see anything that's going on around you. And are you constricted? I'm sure there was enough room in there for Jonah, but probably not a lot of room to make it comfortable. And he would have been constricted every time that stomach emptied itself out. He would have felt that constriction being crushed in and pressed in by everything around him. So he would have been constricted inside there. And what would it have felt like? It would have been slimy. And if there's not a lot of light in there, so not any light in there, so he's not able to see. Was that seaweed that just wrapped itself on my face or was that a tentacle? And what is that slimy thing that keeps slamming me in the face every time this fish turns over? What is that hard object that I'm, I'm lying on? What is that thing that stinks right in front of my nose? What is that? A horrible feeling. If what I read is right, the inside of a sperm whale would be about 104 to 106 degrees. So it would have been warm enough, plenty warm, almost a steamy warm. You know, so it's not just the smell, it's the steam that you get to enjoy as well. In all those digestive juices. And then every once in a while, Jonah would be woken up or Jonah would enjoy that fresh uh, blast of cold seawater as it showered over top of him with whatever else the fish was eating for lunch that day or dinner that day and the seaweed for three days. And what would he have heard? What does the rumbling of a whale's intestine or a fish's intestine sound like? What does the churning of a stomach from inside sound like? What is the... He would have heard the beating of the heart. The pum, 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 pum. Probably would have lulled him asleep a time or two, at least long enough until he was woken up by choking on all the sludge that would have gotten in his mouth or breathed in while he was sleeping. This is hell. And that's why Jonah describes it as the pit of Sheol. This was hell. It's anything but comfortable. Horrid. Just asked last week, how are you going to spend 40 minutes preaching on one verse about Jonah being swallowed by a fish? So that's your answer. I'm going to just describe to you what it would be like to be inside the belly of a fish. Wait till we get to being vomited up on dry land. <laughs> Jonah would have had ample time to sit and think and evaluate his own relationship with the Lord and what God did in delivering him and the grace that God had shown him even in the depths of the water and the grace that God was showing him even in the stomach of that fish. I think Jonah knew that God was not done with him because he had preserved him from death. And that's why the prayer in chapter 2, Jonah thanks God for deliverance before the deliverance. Why? Because Jonah knew the fish is a symbol of God's mercy and His grace. And God is still going to use me. And God is not done with me. And God is going to forgive me. He is going to restore me. He's going to use me again. He doesn't want me to die because I have not finished my task yet. And so Jonah thanks God for the deliverance. So we see the hand of God in His protection and being swallowed. 
We see the hand of God in His preservation three days and three nights in the belly of that fish. Plenty of seaweed to eat if He wanted to eat seaweed or seafood down in the belly of the fish. And then we see the hand of God in Jonah's prayer. And this is chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the, from the stomach of the fish, and he said, After three days and three nights, then Jonah prays. This is right before he's vomited out, this prayer. After three whole days. All of chapter 1 goes by, no prayer from Jonah. The captain has begged Jonah, please petition your God to have mercy on us. The sailors have prayed to their gods. The sailors have prayed to Jonah's God. They've asked Jonah to repent. Jonah has had ample opportunity to pray, but no prayer in chapter 1 from Jonah. In fact, we've hardly heard a word from Jonah to anybody in chapter 1 after the Lord said, go to Nineveh. And he didn't pray. He didn't talk to God after that. He left. He departed. Everybody asked him to pray. He didn't pray. And it's not until he's in the belly for three days and three nights that Jonah finally opens his mouth, or at least prays from the depths of his being, to his God. Because friends, that is exactly what sin does to your prayer life. It cuts it off. Because the very thing you need and that I need, which is communication with God, is the one thing we do not want. That's the irony of it. That's what sin does. It strangles your prayer life. It takes the power out of your prayer life. You don't want to approach God. You don't want to come to God. You don't want to have anything to do with God. Three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed, and notice what it says, to his God. Significant word. To his God. Even though Jonah's rebellion had estranged Jonah from God and had not estranged God from Jonah. And when Jonah came back and Jonah came to himself and Jonah repented and Jonah began to pray, Jonah found that his God was right there, gracious, willing to forgive, free to forgive, rich in loving kindness and rich in mercy and ready to spare and ready to save and ready to forgive. An ocean of grace available. And when Jonah finally prayed, he calls out just the way a child of God would in chapter 2, and all of chapter 2 is taken up with the prayer of Jonah. And we're not going to get into that today because I just want to introduce chapter 2. All of chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer. It's a fascinating study of the prayer of a man like Jonah. And it's going to be a wonderful time, I think, for us to look at that next week. So let's bow our heads. We will, we will pick it up there and we will look at chapter 2 in Jonah's prayer next week. Father, we are grateful to You for Your protection of us, Your preservation of us. We thank You that you are indeed rich in mercy and rich in loving kindness. We thank You that Your grace is sufficient. We thank You that even though we sin, there is atonement, there is forgiveness, there is blood that has been shed. We thank You that You are never far from us, but that You love us enough to always bring us back, to always watch over us, to never give up, to never leave us or forsake us. And that is indeed Your promise. You will never leave us and You will never forsake us. We thank You for that. We thank You that Your grace is so abundant in Christ Jesus. And now, Lord, we bow our knees to Your Word. We worship You. We thank You for its clarity. We thank You, Father, for its, its conviction. And we thank You, God, that You have recorded these things for our benefit. Teach us, we ask, to walk with You this day. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.